Kim Jong-un is in Russia. I would expect that there would be some agreement for North Korea to provide artillery shells. Plus, a conversation with a Ukrainian member of parliament. They are ready to see, to fight till the end, uh, till the, uh, the understanding that they are, they are liberating territories and putting the Ukrainian flag in Crimea, in Luhansk, Kherson, Zaporizhia, uh, and later in the program, what could be a big win for Ukrainian forces off the coast of Crimea? And we meet a man who ran all the way to Kyiv from Amsterdam. Today is Tuesday, September 12th. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening, I'm Steve Karish in Washington. Russian President Vladimir Putin sees no changes coming to American foreign policy after the 2024 election. That story in a moment. Now, speaking of Vladimir Putin, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is headed his way. The AP's Mimi Montgomery has the story. After decades of hot and cold relations, Russia and North Korea are getting closer since the Ukraine invasion, and Kim Jong-un's now in Russia expected to ask for financial aid and military technology in exchange for munitions such as artillery shells and rockets. Political science professor James D.J. Brown says there's likely to be a deal between the two countries. I would expect that there would be some agreement for North Korea to provide artillery shells, but from the Russian side, I think that it would be... Um, more likely that food energy will be provided. I think they'll hold back on providing kind of high-tech military uh, technology, at least publicly. I'm Mimi Montgomery. Meanwhile, speaking in Russia's Far East at the Eastern Economic Forum in Vladivostok, Putin says that U.S. authorities are biased against Russia. Current authorities have driven American society into an anti-Russian spirit and mindset. This is what it's all about. They did this, and now steering the ship in the other direction will be difficult. Secondly, they consider Russia an essential adversary, an eternal enemy even, and they shove this inside the head of the average American. It's bad because it sets the tone for American society. Putin has plenty to say about American politics, too. I don't think there will be any changes to American foreign policy regarding Russia, no matter who is chosen as president. Notably, Putin also came out supporting former President Donald Trump, saying that his prosecution was improper. For more on that side of the story, head over to voanews.com. <laughs> VOA's Eastern Europe Bureau Chief Miroslava Gungadze speaks with Solomia Babrovska about the state of the war. She's a Ukrainian member of parliament and the deputy head of Ukraine's delegation to the NATO Parliamentary Assembly. Ukraine has a new Minister of Defense, uh, the person who is very um, knowledgeable and skilled in negotiation. 
Um, some uh, observers saw that as possible sign uh, or for opening of negotiation or being open to negotiation as well as the latest um, uh, President Zelensky's latest statement about uh, that Ukraine is planning to reach the Crimea territory and talk about demilitarization of the of, of the peninsula. What what are the what are the signs inside Ukraine? What, how people th- feel uh, and think about this? First of all, we uh, we have to see at what polls are saying. They're saying that more than ninety one percent of Ukrainians are not ready to have any negotiations, and that means. Um, they are ready to see to fight till the end, uh, till the uh, the understanding that they are they are liberating territories and putting the Ukrainian flag in Crimea, in Luhansk, Kherson, Zaporizhia, um, etc. Uh, but unfortunately, and uh, what I see you know, within the discussions uh, in Kiev, um, outside Kiev, when we saw Blinken's coming trip to Ukraine visit, yes, uh, and the starting that uh, if Ukraine's if Ukraine ready then Russia probably will be ready with the negotiations and uh, about the elections and so on and so on. And this, this, um, these two issues are very frightening um, to us, not because I'm an MP and that's about elections. That means we will face again the same story as it happened 10 years ago. Um, freezing the line, um, probably sometime just to breathe a lot, you know, uh, without striking uh, your house, whatever you, where you are, in Kyiv or in Lviv or, or in Odessa. But the new third wave uh, will um, come for sure. And the, the, the other uh, side, so uh, that means what for we were fighting for the last year and a half. Uh, if everybody is saying about the international law, violating international law, about the, um, the Ukraine's right to, to win this the, the um, to this this war because that's obvious what what the demands are and who violated and who invaded and who occupying now territories, but at the same time we see what is UN doing and that's one hundred percent frustrating for for Ukrainians um, that that's the separate big game to support Russia and we see how 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 they started to increase even not stabilize but increase um, producing the missiles. Uh, calibers as well, uh, drones, um, and then t- like we are not ready for that. We, we understand that you know next autumn the elections are in in uh, US, but still, um, just to give up everything, uh, that's that's what very painful now for Ukrainians. What I see and what I hear through the western eastern of Ukraine, we don't understand this position at all. You mentioned um, at the top of this interview, you mentioned uh, NATO um, and some disappointment uh, in Ukraine about a NATO decision uh, in this uh, this summer. Um, next year, the next NATO summit is in Washington. What are your expectations? And does this link to Ukraine victory in the war? Um, 
my expectation is still remains the same. That's invitation to Ukraine to become the uh, 33rd member of NATO. Uh, that's what we deserve. That's what we show and what uh, our inspiration and readiness uh, is. And um, uh, I know lots of um, approaches are discuss being discussed and we're still discussing um, uh, in different uh, groups but um, and and even remembering how uh, Germany um, the Western Germany uh, joined NATO and then when they were united the, the the whole state became a member of NATO some of some of my colleagues is trying to uh, to support this idea um, and I think like no one knows what can happen to, uh, next summer with Ukraine and uh, will we face elections will we freeze the line uh, will we sit uh, in Ankara or whatever that, that whenever what can happen um, with um, with Russia but uh, uh, if NATO uh, does not will not invite us um, that means they are not ready really to 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 wider their broad borders and to really be honest and clear with the um, with with the position to to Russian Federation. And what Ukraine would do in this situation? Uh, oh, there is no option. Um, we will we will stand and we will fight. There's there's not not an option. Like I will not leave Ukraine because like we won't become the NATO. We will work, and th that will be internal challenge to transform. Um, internally, to become stronger, and that—that's the—I think that's the very first first challenge to to Ukraine. Solomia Bobrovska is a Ukrainian member of parliament. She was speaking with VOA's Miroslava Gongadze. As we heard in Miroslava's interview, the idea of a negotiated end to the war is unpopular with Ukrainian leaders, but the notion, for better or worse, is gaining traction among politicians around the world. James Nixie is head of Russia and Eurasia programs at Chatham House. It, there appears to be, in private conversations with senior government officials, what we used to always call Ukraine fatigue, um, in the in the in the months and years after uh, 2014, and I think you know we haven't seen much Ukraine fatigue until now, because in the case of a black and white genocidal uh, full-scale invasion and war, which is makes it separate from 2014, then you know fatigue, you know sort of by definition can't set in as early, but with anything from you know rising energy prices to depleting stocks to um, uh, governments who are imminently in and out of power, uh, more important things coming up internally, elec elections and other, other, other things considered to be of primary importance, then I think that we are seeing Ukraine being crowded out. And, and you know, just to take the most obvious example, then we, you know, President Biden has been uh, understood to have said that he would like this over by the end of the year. I mean, good luck, good luck with that, of course. That seems improbable at the very least and, and, re and really quite impossible, actually. But um, I think uh, that is not to say that anybody on the side of pushing Ukraine to negotiation is intrinsically pro-Russian, um, necessarily, uh, but rather that 
And it's not so much that they've, oh, they've had enough of it and they, you know, they want to get on with other things. But they're, I suppose there is a certain amount of, um, at the most obvious level, inability to see beyond the immediate as far as the counteroffensive is concerned. And, of course, this is just one counteroffensive of many. It's the second one already, and there will be further, further ones, I am sure. But I think some people have some difficulty in seeing how Ukraine can achieve its maximalist um, wishes, wish list, um, even if, you know, to most people, in fact, that they are just and reasonable um, desires, requirements, then some people take a view, yes, but in the real world, surely, and look to see where Ukraine can can concede without actually really thinking about where Russia might make concessions, which is something we know nothing about because not a single Russian in authority has ever, to my knowledge, given any indication of what points uh, of the, the argument of the, the war um, they might be willing to concede. So one of the, one of the main reasons it seems to me for not negotiating with Russia now is that the Russians themselves have not given any indication of where it is that they might concede. So you're not really starting from uh, a good place. As a, as a world, we've kind of been here before, right, with Georgia, with Chechnya, with, with other sure. post-Soviet states. So so how has sure. it ended in the past, and how is Ukraine different? Uh, yeah. yeah, the short answer to your question, Steve, is not well. <laughs> um, by which I mean that some international arbiter or other has flown in supposedly heroically, and forced the invadee um, to sign some form of peace agreement, um, and which leaves Russia with a degree, quite a considerable more, amount more cake than they had before, with Russia not making any concessions whatsoever other than stopping firing. So, uh, so you mean, I think you mentioned Georgia 2008, first of all, that's exactly what happened then. And subsequent agreements or supposed treaties with Russia, um, not least the Minsk agreements, um, uh, both of them ultimately were uh, designed, quite frankly, to make concessions to Russia so as not to escalate. So it's for self-deterrence. It's for, for fear of escalation um, everywhere, whether that's you know moving into all of Georgia or over into the rest of Europe in the current case that has forced um, a, a softer politician of some sort or another to, uh, to, 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 to think that he is, and it is a he, I think, normally, uh, saving the world by, by, by getting a, a, an end to the firing without understanding the longer-term consequences for peace, security, sovereignty, independence, human rights, justice, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in Ukraine, that would be different because... Well, I think in this, it's different, frankly, because, you know, it's the straw that broke the camel's back. So you, you yourself gave all these examples of what's gone on before. They are similar in many senses. They are certainly a result of Russia's imperial mindset. Um, but now that we are seeing the obvious intent, the stated intent to take out, take over... Um, an entire country and one the size of, you know, with all due respect to Georgia, but one that's not 4.5 million people, you know, caught, you know, the other side of the Black Sea, but um, but really one that, that is it is quite obvious and evidentially, uh, you know, a part of the European family, then uh, then then that, that that in itself makes it different. So yes, I mean, there's obviously international law has been broken, but that's happened before. Obviously, there's been crossing of 
a border in anger, but that's happened before. Um, but I think the the proximity, size, scale, plus, of course, the war crimes um, of various different sorts, um, I, I think makes it it does it makes it actually harder for politicians to wriggle out of this one and heroically fly into a peace agreement, and and I think, uh, but but not not altogether impossible, I must say. So I guess the point of my piece that you kindly referred to is that. It's you know it, it, there is probably an inverse proportionality between you know the, the scale and intensity of a conflict and the time it takes for you know for Ukraine fatigue to set in, but perhaps these things um, are sadly inevitable over time. James Nixie is director of Russia and Eurasia programs for Chatham House. Mr. Nixie, thanks for your analysis this morning. Thanks. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Steve Karish. <laughs> We meet a man in a few minutes who ran across Europe to raise money to help buy ambulances for Ukraine. First, though, Ukrainian forces have recaptured a key piece of energy infrastructure with some symbolic importance. Anna Chernikova is in Kyiv with the details. We were discussing this last week. Uh, we had no... Uh we had no information about any results and why this operation was taking place. It was under uh, under the brief of secret. But now we have confirmation from the intelligence uh, service of Ukraine. Uh, they made this official statement uh, telling some details of, of what had happened, actually. And um, what we know is that as a result of this recent uh, Ukrainian intelligence uh, operation, special operation uh, that uh, they did in Crimea, uh, Ukraine regained control over oil and gas drilling rigs that uh, Russian forces uh, use for military purposes and that Russian forces uh, and Russian Federation occupied in 2015, uh, back in 2015, when uh, uh, after Crimea got under annexation. Uh, what's important is that uh, this is not only about uh, oil and gas uh, drilling rigs as, as a fact in terms of energy uh, sources, uh, but uh, it's also, it has very strategic Re, uh, very strategic um, location uh, next to the well in, in the territorial waters of Crimea. Are these oil rigs out at sea? They're offshore, or are they on land? Uh, they are located offshore. Uh, they're located in 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 the in the water offshore. And it's a bit of a symbolic victory for Ukraine as well. Can can you tell me how? Uh, yeah, it has quite a symbolic meaning for Ukraine because back in Yanukovych presidency time, uh, these drilling rigs were nationalized and the person responsible for this nationalization uh, pro process was uh, Mr. Boyko, who was at that point a minister of energy of Ukraine. And um, it was a very corrupt process process uh, of the nationalization, uh, Ukraine uh, bought basically this drilling rigs uh, and paid a huge amount of money, much more than it was um, it, it was expected. And uh, uh, this, th 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 at that point, the Minister of Energy 
as well as the president Yanukovych and uh, uh, and number of other top officials of that period, they were involved in this corruption scheme. And uh, from that moment, this drilling rigs uh, got the, the name. Uh, so they were called in Ukraine boycott drilling rigs because, as I already mentioned, Boyko was the uh, minister of energy. So uh, and the investigation, uh, the investigation was ongoing for quite a long time. And for the moment, uh, unfortunately, there is no result uh, yet. Again, uh, we uh, when it was occupied by Russian Federation, uh, this process was stopped uh, at a certain point. So, but anyway, uh, this this reeks is you know quite uh, quite a topic in Ukraine for for it for over a decade now. And their story continues. Yeah, exactly. And the story continues now as uh, Ukraine uh, gaining uh, back uh, the. The control of this uh, rigs and uh, probably Ukraine will use also the strategic area in the sea for war purposes. Uh, but um, uh, so we'll see how how all this will go and uh, how this rigs will be used. And we'll leave it there for today. Anna Chernikova is in Kiev. Anna, as always, thanks for your time today. Thank you, Steve. And finally today, for most people, a trip across Europe means a backpack and a Eurorail pass. Not so for Boaz Kratwick of the Netherlands. All he needed was his running shoes and 50 days. Laysa Backletz has his story. On the last few meters to the Kyiv finish line, a 29-year-old runner from the Netherlands, Boaz Kratwick, runs easily and with a smile. He can already see the finish line of his ultramarathon. I'm very proud and uh, yeah, happy that we're almost in Kyiv. It took 50 days for Boas to run across Europe to draw world attention to the war in Ukraine. I'm not a politician, I'm not a doctor, I don't have unlimited resources, but something that I've been doing my whole life is running. So I thought, what is a better way to raise that awareness by running to the war? The idea of a 2,500-kilometer ultramarathon came to Boaz earlier this year. He asked his coach to help him. They trained for six months, gathered a small team, named the project Ultra for Ukraine, and left Amsterdam on July 22nd. Bram Vogels, Boaz trainer, speaks of how he supported Boaz during the race. I monitor his health, his weight, how well it goes, uh, that he relaxes, I massage him. I do some driving and I make uh, the contacts with the locals, with the officials of the cities. At the same time, they launched an online campaign to raise funds to buy ambulances for the frontline zone in Ukraine. Boaz Kraktvik talks about ambulances. Every 30,000 euro that we collect, we can buy an ambulance. And when Boaz crossed the border into Ukraine, they received personal donations from Ukrainians in addition to the online fundraising. Bo Tilly, photographer of the project, talks about Ukrainians' support. People were following us via our live track or waiting for us on the road and then handing us cash. And we've maybe raised already like a bit more than a thousand euros. Upon crossing the border into Ukraine, Boris and his team got an immediate taste of what daily life has been like for Ukrainians in the past year and a half. First moment we arrived in Lviv, the first night we had, we had a couple sirens, air alarms, we had to sleep in the bomb shelters. 
Boas calls it a victory run. He and dozens of Ukrainian athletes run another 13 kilometers from Kiev's suburbs to the final stretch to the central independence square. The adrenaline gets him going. Oh, if I did, I can go 100 now because of all these people. During the race, Bose managed to collect funds to buy two ambulances. One is already in Kiev, but the team hopes donations will keep coming well after the finish line. Lesia Bakalets for VOA News, Kyiv. And that'll do it for us today. Stay up to date with continuing coverage on Ukraine and news from around the world 24 hours a day. Visit us online at voanews.com and on social media. Be sure to follow VOA News. On behalf of everyone at VOA, thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Karish. Washington, bam, 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 zip, D.C.